Would you please open in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Did you know that there are 168 hours in a week? Many of you did, but you knew that there were a lot. So my question for you this morning is, which hour of all of the 168, which hour is the most important hour in your week? At First Free, we believe something that um, is maybe not a real common belief. We believe that this hour, this hour that we are gathered together as Christians for corporate worship, is the most important hour in all of our week. Or depending on who's preaching, it may be the most important hour and a half of your in, entire week. But let me push into that a little bit more. Do you agree with that statement? As you think of all 168 hours in your week, do you agree that this one is the most important? I would suspect that not all of you agree with that. You do a lot of things throughout your week. I mean, for normal people, you spend about 40 to 60 hours of your week sleeping. Uh, others, 40 to 60 hours of their week working, whether at home or in a job. You spend important time raising your children, cultivating critical relationships in your life, keeping up your house, running errands, maybe doing ministry and evangelism. A lot of hours doing a lot of really important things. And as we learned in our series in Romans, as a Christian, in view of what Christ has done for us, every hour is to be lived in worship of God. I'm not denying that as I still am so bold as to make the claim that this hour, corporate worship, should be the most important hour in the life of a disciple. If you're not convinced of this, um, I just want to lay my cards on the table. My aim over the next four weeks is to persuade you of this reality. We'll look at the Scriptures. You can see if you agree and are persuaded. You see, what I think is that when a Christian does not think this hour is the most important hour, they're thinking, you know, my small group is the most important hour, or my Sunday school class, or my personal devotions with the Lord. That's, those are the most important hours of my week. I'm convinced that the main reason for that is simply because we don't quite understand what's happening when we gather for corporate worship in this hour. Sure, some, they've got misguided priorities. Um, they're prioritizing um, golf over corporate worship or, or something else like that. But I think in the, in the main, people just simply don't know what the Bible says about what's happening here. But that's my job as a pastor, is to teach you what God's Word says about what's happening when we gather for corporate worship. And I pray that over these weeks, you will come to see that it is very important, if not the most important, more important maybe than you think it is 
today. And therefore, make it a priority in your week. Plan for it accordingly. But more than that, for many of you, it already is a priority. And for you, I want you to have a greater understanding of what's happening so that you can engage more truly and more fully in what we are doing. Let me begin this sermon by saying that one of the reasons we think corporate worship is of primary importance is because how intimately it is connected to the very mission of the church that Christ has given the church to make disciples of Jesus Christ who glorify God. When we worship, we are doing the very thing that we were redeemed to do. The end of the mission of the church is that we would glorify God. So that's one reason it's important. We do this in an emphatic way once a week on Sunday. But the other reason is not the ends, it's the means. We believe that corporate worship is one of the critical means of making disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not the only way that disciples are made, but in many people's taxonomy of what are the critical steps in making disciples, they don't see corporate worship as being critical in that. And we want to put forward an argument that it actually is the key strategy in making disciples. Not the only strategy, not that all other things are not important, but that it is special in God's economy of us becoming more like Jesus. So, this morning, what I want to put forward is that corporate worship is primary for us because of a principle that is repeated throughout Scripture. And that principle is this. We reflect what we worship. We reflect what we worship. So, what we worship, how we worship, it actually changes us. We are by nature reflective creatures. That's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. In your very wiring as a human being, you were made to reflect what you worship. You were made in the image of God to image God, to reflect God's glory in your life. And as you behold God and worship, you become more like God and do that. But following the fall... As we learned in Romans chapter 1, people exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They, instead of worshiping the God who is to be praised forever, amen, they gave themselves over to idols. We all worship someone or something. And what we revere, we will resemble. That's my sermon in a nutshell this morning. We reflect what we worship. We become what we behold. We resemble what we revere. That's the principle. When we worship idols, we become like them. When we worship God, we become like Him. So I want to demonstrate this principle from Scripture today. Um, both, both of those things. When we worship idols, when we worship God, we become like what we worship. We're going to look at Exodus 32 to demonstrate this point, but I'm not going to do a thorough exposition. You're going to have to 
hold on for the ride. We're going to talk about a lot of scriptures this morning, and you're going to have to maybe work a little harder than normal to track with my argument. But at the end of each of my two main points, I want to apply. How, how does it apply the principle that when we worship idols, we become like them? And then specifically, how does it apply that when we worship God in corporate worship, God uses that for us to become more like Him? So that's where we're going this morning. My first point, to repeat myself, when we worship idols, we become like them. Start with Scripture to demonstrate my point, and then we'll look at applications for it. The Scripture is Exodus 32. Before we look at a few verses in Exodus 32, you need to understand the context for this passage. It's a context that's going to be important for the entire sermon. At the end of chapter 24, after the covenant is renewed with the people of Israel, we'll talk about that in four weeks, after it's renewed, Moses goes back on the mountain. He's already been on the mountain to receive the the, the Ten Commandments and some of the law, but he goes back up on the mountain, and here he's receiving instructions for the building of the tabernacle where the people of God will meet with God. Instructions for the house of God that is to be built. But as he's up on the mountain, meeting with God, receiving instructions about the tabernacle where the people will meet with God, the people, as we read in 32 verse 1, grew impatient. And so they ask Aaron in verse 2 to fashion gods for them to go before them. And Aaron took the gold from their earrings, which they had taken from Egypt, and he made a golden calf, verse 4. I'm not going to go into detail in this episode. I want you to see one thing in this passage, and that is the very subtle but intentional way that God addresses or sees this act of idolatry. It demonstrates that when we worship idols, we become like them. So, putting three verses on the screen for you. Verse 8 chapter 32. The Lord tells Moses that the people have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. This language of turning aside out of the way is language that you would use of cattle who don't obey the halter. It's elaborated, this turning aside, in verse 9 when God says, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. This language is repeated throughout chapters 33 and 34. Verse uh, 25, Moses himself sees that the people had broken loose. What I want you to get from this is the language, the actual verbs that are being used, the nouns that are being used are language that is describing recalcitrant cattle. The stiff-necked people who won't be led, they break loose from their pen. They've worshipped a cow. Now they're starting to act like cows. They become what they behold. They reflect what they revere. And in this case, they do so to their ruin. If I were to give 
one proof text for the point that I'm trying to make, that when we worship idols, we become like them, it would be Psalm 115. This is what it says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. In Isaiah 6, we see... This principle in Psalm 115 illustrated. Isaiah is asked to go and speak to idolaters, those who worship idols that don't see or hear. And as he goes to them, he is told to say to them, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Do you see what's happened? Those who have worshipped idols that have eyes but can't see, that have ears but can't hear, they've become like those idols. They've become deaf and blind to God's Word. God wants Isaiah to know, you're going to go and be my preacher, but they're not going to be able to hear you because they've become like what they beheld. They've become like their ear, their deaf and blind idols. So that's the point. Hopefully it is clear enough. Let's now consider the application for our lives today. Maybe I'll begin with an illustration. A lot of you here are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia and you know the character Eustace Grubb from the voyage of the Don Treader. And there's this uh, scene that sticks in everybody's mind that reads that book where Eustace becomes a dragon. Why does he become a dragon? Because as he's laying on a dragon's hoard, as he's beholding all of the treasure there, he becomes so captivated by that treasure that his greedy, this is what Lewis says, and dragonous thoughts transformed him into a dragon. Now, if we worship money and wealth today, we may not literally turn into a dragon, but I think it holds that we will become dragon-like in the way that we think, the way that we act, and the way that we speak. James K. Smith, who spoke in this church a number of years ago, says that the shopping mall can actually be very much like liturgical worship in its order. It's just giving a different message than the message of the gospel that we give today. You could apply that not just to the mall, but to Bradley Fair or even Amazon. He says that the liturgy of the shopping center starts with advertising. Advertising that announces that we have a problem. We don't have enough. But then it quickly presents us with good news. We can have the newest and best thing right now. 
It offers hope to our problem of not having enough. It offers a hope of redemption of sorts. Redemption through consumption. All we have to do is bring our offering to the cash register. And there, the marketplace clergy, the cashier, will gladly accept our offerings and send us off with a benediction (laughs) and ask us to come back very soon. For some, shopping is not just something that we do. It has become a habit, a ritual that has then shaped what we love. It has actually formed our desires and our affections. It creates in us a growing love for consumption, a worship of consumption. And we then become what the whole system reinforces dissatisfied, perpetually discontent. Andrew Wilson offers another example, one that for many of you, those who are younger perhaps, may hit closer to home, but also for those who are older. Think of your smartphone. Is it possible that you behold it so much? Some of you are beholding it right now. that you are beginning to come like it. Think of how quickly we can now assimilate information, just like our phones. But what about slow, deep meditation? Have we grown all but incapable of that? We can be everywhere at once on our phones but we struggle to be present, present anywhere. We have dozens of apps open in our head all the time. So it's quite difficult to pay attention to any one thing or any one person for any given amount of time. Our options are endless and we can have them quickly, but isn't it amazing how our society is growing increasingly anxious. We become what we behold. When we worship that which is created rather than the creation, I mean the creator, we become like idols. That's the problem, friends. It's not just a problem for those who are not yet Christians. It's a problem in the church. But there is an opposite truth that is also very true, and that is my second point. When we worship God, we become like Him. To demonstrate this, I want to turn back to Exodus 32, but also some in Exodus 34. Remember that while the people were making an idol and worshiping it, where's Moses? He's up in God's presence meeting with God on the mountain. And so, It shouldn't surprise us that he also reflects what he has been beholding. We know that when he comes down from the mountain a second time and brings down the new tablets, remember he broke the first set, he brings them down. We're told that his face shone 
because he had been talking with God. But that's not what I want to focus on this morning. I want to focus not on his physical appearance, but on his behavior when he confronts the situation at the bottom of the mountain. And I believe that his character reflects God's character because he has been in God's presence beholding God. Now, to get a short summary of God's character, to make my point, we have one in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. This is what God reveals about his name to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So he's merciful and he's gracious He's committed to his covenant with his people, his steadfast love. He's slow to anger. Doesn't mean that he doesn't get angry, but he's slow to anger. He forgives iniquity and transgression, but he won't clear the guilty. It's not to say that the God who is gracious and merciful does not bring judgment. God's character includes both. Well, how is that character reflected in Moses? In chapter 32, verse 10, we see God is really angry with the people for their idolatry. And he says to Moses, Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God's saying, I'm going to wipe the whole nation out. And what does Moses do in response to this? In verses 11 to 13, Moses says, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Verse, he goes on to say, I mean, these are the people you just brought out of Egypt. Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Verse 13, he essentially says, Remember your covenant with your people. Remember your steadfast love. The point I want you to see is that Moses has been with the merciful God, and now he wants the people of God to be shown mercy. Mercy is overflowing from him. But like God, Moses does not clear the guilty. In verses 30 to 32, he stands in the gap for the people. He says to God in verse 32, But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. In other words, he offers to die for the people. The one who has beheld God is now becoming like God. Now, God doesn't grant him his request. Moses is not a suitable substitute for the people of God. Later, the Son of God himself will become a man so that he can be the substitute for sinners. But the point I want to make is what we see in Jesus demonstrates the point that the impulse of Moses is very godlike to deal with the sins of the people. 
He is becoming like the God he has beheld on the mountain. And now, friends, the same is true for us, but in an even more profound way. Now when we come to Christ by faith, we behold God, the Son of God, through the Spirit of God. And guess what? When we behold God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we become like Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it well. As we behold Christ by faith, we behold the glory of the Lord, just as Moses had seen the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That is, as we look to Christ in faith instead of to idols, we are fulfilling the purpose of our redemption. We are being conformed over time into the image of God's Son. Amen? Those who worship idols become like them, but those who turn to Christ in faith can become like Christ. Well, how does all of this relate to corporate worship? What I want to do now is try to demonstrate to you that in corporate worship, we behold God in a special way a way that is prescribed and ordained by God that is different from the other ways that we behold God. In such a way that as we behold Him in corporate worship, we are becoming increasingly like Him. I want to show you this from two passages in the New Testament, but to make sense of them, we have to stay in the Old Testament for just a little while longer. So try to track with me. Remember, where's Moses? He's meeting with God on the mountain. The God of heaven has made his footstool on the earth. The God of heaven has come down to meet with his people, but we see this in chapter 19. The people of God can't even touch the mountain, much less come up to it. This is what we read in Exodus 19, 16. There were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that the people trembled. Then in verse 18, and the Lord descended on the mountain in fire and the whole mountain was wrapped in smoke and it trembled greatly. So all of these are manifestations of God's presence, but the people weren't able to come up on the mountain. In fact, Moses was instructed to tell them, don't even come near it. You'll be struck down. But as Moses is up on the mountain, he's receiving instructions for the tabernacle, the house of God. Get that word in your head. We're going to come back to it. The tent of meeting, the place where God would meet with his people. And in Exodus 40, in climactic fashion, after all is built, The glory of God descends on the tabernacle. God dwells with his people. But then in the very last verse of the book of Exodus, we're told that not even Moses can enter, much less 
the people of God, which sets us up for Leviticus. The way to enter is through the blood of a sacrifice. It's the only way to enter. But here's the thing. There's only one man that can ever enter, the high priest. And he only once a year. And only with the blood of a sacrifice. When we come later to the temple, we see the same type of thing. The temple is called the house of God, the place where God met with his people. But again, there are limits, just like on the mountain, just like in the tabernacle. Only the high priest can come, only once a year, and only with blood. But when we get to the new covenant, all of this changes. Through Jesus, we now have access to God by faith. Jesus is God with us, as we learn at Christmas. And as God with us, he becomes the meeting place between God and man. But this is the argument, maybe the controversial argument. I believe that the New Testament teaches us that we meet with God through Christ, especially when we come to corporate worship. Well, why do I say this? It's picking up on a phrase, the house of God, which we see for the first time in the Bible in Genesis 28 with Jacob and his ladder, which is a vision of heaven and earth being united. It wasn't an actuality, but it, it was a vision fulfilled in Christ, who at the end of John 1 says, you're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see angels descending and ascending in Christ. He is the meeting place between God of man. But that word, house of God, it's used in the New Testament, but I believe in each set setting, each situation, it is speaking specifically of the corporate gathering of worship. I'll begin with Ephesians 2, that's not conclusive, but the reason I share it is to show you how similar it is to Hebrews 10 and 12, which I think are more persuasive. So Ephesians 2, 11 to 23, again, a few representative verses. Paul says that in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The setting is both Jew and Gentile. It's like when you guys worship together, it's a display of the manifold wisdom of God. Both groups of you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 19, he uses our word. He says, we are now members of the house of God. The translation says household, but it's really house of God. Then in verse 22, in him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Again, the word together for me is a clue that this is referring to the gathered church. And interestingly, what is happening as we are being built together, as we minister together, as we worship together, we are, as he says in chapter 4, becoming like Jesus. We are achieving maturity to the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. So as we gather for worship, this is the house of God. 
We draw near to God through the blood of Christ. We are built up and become like Christ so that we can reflect Christ, which is what we were created to do, which is what we were redeemed to do. We see something very similar in Hebrews 10. Look at Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. I'll put, again, some representative verses on the screen. Verse 19, similar thing to Ephesians. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This is remarkable. Let it sink in. This is something that the people of God in the Old Testament could not do. But now through Christ, we can. Verses 21 to 22 say, And since we have a great high priest, so remember the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, we now have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with full assurance. Verses 24 to 25 give a clue that this happens when we gather for corporate worship. We're commanded to stir one another up towards love and good deeds, just like Ephesians, to build one another up. And we do this by not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. You see, some were in the habit of not gathering together for corporate worship. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, why would you do that? Do you not understand what happens when you gather for corporate worship? You are drawing near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Further evidence that this is speaking of corporate worship is found in Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29. Verse 18, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. This is an allusion back to Sinai. You have not come to that. The word you have not come is actually the same word used in 1022 calling us to draw near. He's saying, you haven't come to Mount Sinai where the people had to stand far off from God. No, as verse 22 says, you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the assembly, ecclesia, church, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God. And as verse 24 says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And then in verse 28, by way of conclusion, therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I find this remarkable. For me, this pulled the curtains back to see what's happening when we worship. I think the flow of the argument is that when you gather together for worship, you need to understand what's happening. You can't see it with your physical eyes. You can't touch it with your hands. But when we assemble together to worship God in the local church, you are actually being transported by the Spirit of God into the throne room of heaven, to the very holy of holies, to the heavenly assembly, 
to God himself and to his son. This is the house of God. This is where we meet with God in a very special way. The heavenly assembly, the heavenly church that is being referred to in Hebrews, or what our statement of faith calls the true church, it is seen in the earthly assembly, in the local church. The local church gathered for worship is not simply a part of the church of God. It is a manifestation of the true church of God that is assembled around the risen Christ at the right hand of the throne of God. When we gather together, therefore, Christ is with us. As Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Many people think this refers simply to whenever a couple of Christians gather together for fellowship. I don't think the context of Matthew 18 supports that conclusion. Sure, as you meet together with other believers, Christ dwells in your hearts. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is with you in that sense. But this is speaking of an official gathering of the local church. There Christ has promised to be with us in a special way. Don't get me wrong. God is present everywhere. If you're in Christ, like I said, Christ dwells in your hearts right now. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we learned in Romans 12, you can and you should worship God in every hour of your life. You can encounter God in your private devotions. I hope you do. In your family worship, your small group, your Sunday school class, other gatherings. But while God is present everywhere, you can encounter him in nature. God has set aside corporate worship of the church as something special. He has ordained corporate worship, and if we neglect it as a Christian, we are neglecting one of the primary ways God has set aside to make us more like Jesus. This is the house of God. When we gather together to worship God, we are meeting with God. We behold God and therefore become like Him. And friends, that's the purpose of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's to worship God and to become like His Son. You can do that in all kinds of ways. But we believe that this is the primary way and therefore the most important way. If you are here today and you are not yet a Christian, I want to address you briefly. It's a new year. Maybe you're thinking of your goals. As you consider your goals, it's important to know what God says about you. The purpose of your life is to worship Him. You were made in the image of God, and as an image bearer, you will reflect what you worship. You will worship something. You were made to worship. If it's not the one true God, you will worship idols of some sort. And guess what? When you do that, you will resemble them, but you will resemble them to your ruin. Because the Bible is very clear that anyone who worships anyone or anything other than the one true God 
they will face the judgment of God. But the good news is that through Christ, through his blood on the cross, he has died in our place. He did what Moses couldn't do, what no man other than Christ could do. He stood in the gap for us. He shed his blood for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins, made right with God, but not just forgiven and made right, also so that we could now see God, behold him, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as we behold him by faith, we are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. That's what we were made to do. That's what we were redeemed to do. And friends, that's my first reason why corporate worship is the most important hour of your week. I hope you'll come back for the next few weeks Uh, to learn some of the other reasons. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you made us in your image. What a privilege to reflect your glory, but also that you have made a way that as fallen creatures that we could do that in increasing measure now through the mercy of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.